There is a packed house out there. That's all I am to you, isn't it? A meal ticket. Never mind about my feelings. Never mind about my suffering. It's just about your show. Not even our show. Your show. I want a palimony agreement. And I want one now. Well, I don't have a palimony agreement on me right now. It's tomorrow, all right? Don't use that tone to me. That sarcastic, contemptuous tone that means you know everything because you're a man and I know nothing because I'm a woman. You're not a woman. Oh, you bastard. Re-re-reboot. Which one will it be? It's the Ruined Childhood Podcast. Greetings, Starfighters. This is Ruined Childhoods. Thank you for listening. If you are a subscriber or regular listener, you may know that we are celebrating a movie that represents each U.S. state in alphabetical order. On the last episode, we ventured to mid-90s Delaware and witnessed a particularly interesting 24 hours at Empire Records. On this episode, we're taking our business down south to the Sunshine State, the state currently governed by human weasel Ron DeSantis. But if we had our druthers, it would be led by natives such as Sarah Paulson, Maya Rudolph, Debbie Harry, or Stephen Root. It's also home to the Everglades, Disney World, and the Kennedy Space Center. But this state is also home of a fictional nightclub called The Birdcage. Daniel old so-and-so, how about those dolphins? Ah, <laughs> uh, how do you think I feel about them? Betrayed, discouraged, <laughs> bewildered. <laughs> that scene in the birdcage is perfect. It's a perfect scene, and uh, no notes don't change a thing. Nope. Yep. Cut, print, moving on. That scene, uh, uh, many scenes in the birdcage, honestly, are are quite wonderful. And of course, because it's it's the work of masters, both in front of the camera and behind the camera. Sure. So, right. Naturally, you're, they're working from some bona fide source material here based on the French film La Cage aux Faux, translate to, to the birdcage. <laughs> Yeah. And have you ever seen have you seen that film, John? Have you I, seen La Cage aux Folles? I watched La Cage aux Folles the other day and it was my first time seeing it. And I was I I was very intrigued by the similarities, but also really taking note of the things that they did change, you know, things that like, okay, it makes better sense. And I, I think also flows with better with the time and the location to do things a little bit differently. And I uh, I loved them both. And I, I think that because I have such a deep history with the birdcage, it was easy to look at La Caja Fall and be like, oh, birdcage did it better. But La Caja Fall did it first. And, right. and I believe that La Caja Fall is actually inspired by a movie from 1968 or 69 called Staircase. Yeah, uh, an English film called Staircase. Have you ever seen Staircase, Dan? I have never seen Staircase. Staircase, which I also watched. The Staircase. It's just called Staircase. And it is is about these, uh, this couple, this gay couple. Uh, When when we first see uh, them, they're actually performing in drag. And uh, they, they have very much of a, you know, 
Albert Armand type of dynamic where one of them maybe is a little bit more, I guess, traditionally serious, and the other one is maybe a little bit more on the flamboyant side. And uh, it's not the same thing. Like, they don't own a nightclub or a drag club or anything. Uh, the the intro number is really the the only drag, like actual drag we really see. And the the plot is that one of them actually gets arrested or is going to be arrested for wearing women's clothing in public. Mm. So where does this take place? This takes place. Well, it was filmed in France, but I believe no, it takes place in London. Oh, yeah. Oh, OK. So right. 1969 London. And so that was 69. But I think that the La Caja Fall. Let's see. That's 70. The musical was 73. Yeah. The film was 78. Oh, wait. Was La Cajo Fall the the film came after La Cajo Fall the musical? Yes. Well, there, well, no. There was another play (laughs) called La Cajo Fall that uh, was from 1973 that I believe was not a musical. And uh, then came. Let's see. Based on Staircase? Inspired by Staircase. It's okay. it's, it's very confusing. And so uh, let's see. Yeah, the the musical was let's see. That one opened 83 was the first production of that one. Yeah. Right. With uh with book by Harvey Firestein. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. So this one it runs a few layers deep. Right. Oh, yeah. Okay. M- more so. More so than I believed. More so than I thought. Yeah. I I knew going into this when I first saw it, I was aware of La Cajal Fall just because I rem- growing up within the vicinity of New York City and therefore Broadway, knew of musicals that I wasn't seeing. Uh-huh. My first musical I saw was Les Misérables. Oh, that was and your first. I saw that. That was my first. Yeah, that was broke my Broadway cherry with Les Mis uh, back in 1991. Okay. All right. I believe 1990 or 91 was when I saw uh, was when I saw Les Mis. But I remember before that, like either our mother or both of our parents saw La Cage because they saw okay. shows frequently, especially yeah. our yeah, mom. Yeah. Uh, so. So yeah, so we saw, so we knew about it. There were a lot of shows that I knew about because she would come home and have the playbill. Right. And even before I was interested in theater, I still was like, okay, this is interesting. So I had no idea what it, what it was. And then when the birdcage was coming out, I think that's around when I was, became aware of it. And I think the birdcage definitely has the feeling of a French farce in oh, uh, which which farce I like. With a I think it really F. maintains right, right. But it specifically, and I don't know if I can necessarily put my finger on it, but there is there is definitely a French farce aspect to it where like Gerard Depardieu should be somewhere. Gerard Depardieu is not in La Cage aux Folles. Right. Uh, yeah. 
but it just I I don't know that to me that's the association. It there is a depardieuity about it, and it it feels yeah, it definitely feels like a uh, a French farce at at times. Sure. And at times also at times very much American, very much about American uh, society, politics, views, issues. Elaine May wrote the screenplay. Yeah. And it it definitely carries her signature sting. Absolutely. And I know that some of the lines oh, yeah. were actually taken from experiences that she had. Uh, I, I notably in the dinner scene when they're talking about abortion and Nathan Lane says, well, I think the way to fix abortion is to kill the mothers. And I think that that was a, a line taken from, you know, a conversation Elaine May had, which just goes it, to it, show she's brilliant. It feels like something she would say sarcastically to somebody who wouldn't get that she was being sarcastic. Absolutely. And agree with her. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so, Dan, so, well, I, I want to know what your first experience was seeing The Birdcage, because I, this was a movie that I remember, you know, I was 13 when this came out. And and I, I may have seen it in the theater. It was definitely one that played regularly in our household growing up, at least for me. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I saw it in the theater. I saw it at the Cranford Theater, and it was released in in March of March of nineteen ninety six. So hey, it was released March eighth, nineteen ninety six, a day before your birthday. Look at that. So perhaps that was your uh, that could have been you. Know, you would have been having your bar mitzvah. So, not for a few weeks. Not for a few weeks. Not for a few weeks. Yeah. Oh, it was delayed. So. <laughs> uh, Anyway, The Birdcage came out then. I remember seeing it at the Cranford Theater, probably on spring break that Makes year. Makes sense, yeah. And though I went to Rutgers University, not far from our hometown of Cranford, New Jersey, so certainly could have could have made the trip up to, to see The Birdcage. But regardless, that's where I saw it. And I remember I was really uh, excited because it was... It was Robin Williams doing. It was a Robin Williams mustache movie, which meant that it would be a little more adult, mature. His <laughs> character would be more, you know, perhaps a bit more grounded. Now, that's not to disqualify a film's Robin Williams clean shaven movies like Good Morning Vietnam, right. which is one of my favorite performances of his, and Dead Poet Society. But it's also not to the extent of of drama of a Robin Williams beard movie, and what were of a some Good other Will hunting or the Fisher King? Yeah, what were some other Robin Williams mustache movies? Cadillac Man, Cadillac Man, of course. Yeah, Ca- you would, you would say that he was more grounded in that. These were were both the t- these. Well, I haven't seen Cadillac Man in forever, but. Yes, he's playing a, a womanizing car salesman. Not in a, a not he's not doing Mrs. Doubtfire. Right, right. You know, when so, you when you mentioned yeah. so it's it's interesting that you say that Robin Williams when he has a mustache is more grounded because such is I feel like the opposite with Kevin Klein. 
I feel like when Kevin Klein has a mustache, that's when he's going to be a little bit more chaotic. Uh, Fish called Wanda. Fish called Wanda. Yeah. I, I don't know. I I just think of Kevin what Klein. What are some other Ke- Kevin? I want to say January Man, though. I've never seen January Man. I just saw January Man for the first time recently. And uh, should I watch it? I I saw that it's streaming, and he I'm does like, have Man, a he does have all- a he does have a mustache in that movie, and it's strange. It's a very strange movie, but like good strange. I don't think that that's uh, not the type of movie I think I want to be strange. It's a I don't know. It's one of those movies where it's like that's an interesting decision that they made. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. Uh, I yeah. don't think that this is a good movie, but I'm not having a bad time. It's just like a little chaotic. You, you got Kevin yeah. Klein in there, Alan Rickman, Susan Sarandon, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's in there too, right? So, so these are all people whose work I enjoy. Yeah. Other Kevin Klein mustache movies, we have Soap Dish. So, I mean, oh yeah. Hello. I uh, there's also yeah. uh, well, I think you I think you had one in like French Kiss, but that one's a little less uh chaotic. But I think of him uh, I think of him as somebody who, you know, his role is very frequently you know, his facial hair adapts with the roles that he has. He did not have a mustache in Orange County. He's not chaotic there. No, he's very no. grounded. And I'm there. trying to remember. I'm trying to remember if he had like the thin beard, like the Kevin Klein stubble. I don't think the so. The collegiate stubble. Well, one movie that I watched featuring Kevin Klein, kind of in preparation for this movie, because it goes along with that you know mid '90s theme of gay tropes and uh, uh, questioning mm. gay stereotypes, is In and Out. Where you know he definitely plays what it, you know what would be considered a very grounded person, and then of course the situation comes that puts him into a bit of a you know a bit of chaos, and uh, I uh, I actually I really enjoyed watching a lot of movies this past week that in preparation for uh, our discussion about the Birdcage. Because there there were a lot of films at that time that I think were made in response to a lot of the different perceptions going around. This is, you know, Clinton era, don't ask, don't tell. There's there's a lot of uh, conflicting beliefs going on where it's like, oh, yeah, we're we're all progressive. I'm not sure, though, about gay marriage. And there were a lot of issues that just people didn't want to touch. And, you know, we're coming right. off of a really, um, you know, big time in the AIDS epidemic. Uh, this is really where things started to kind of fall into place a little bit, where, you know, everybody was kind of wrapping their heads around it a little bit better than they were in the 80s and earlier 90s well well and to add some context here so you you have the aids uh aids epidemic starting in the early 80s and really being you know prominent in uh, in gay communities and of course all of the you know homophobic leaders jump on this and 
start spreading a lot of misinformation about AIDS, but there's also just a lot that they don't know about it at yeah. that time. And so much of that is held onto through the 90s. And I think another another movie that also has an impact in bringing bringing awareness and also breaking ground in where making it quote unquote okay for actors for especially for straight leading male actors to play gay characters you have Philadelphia in 1993 yep. Philadelphia but, which right, you also which brought on in and out because in when Tom Hanks won the Oscar right. for Philadelphia you know, thanked a uh, a gay teacher and essentially outed him to the whole world. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yes. Yes, exactly. So there's that connection as well. But you still have so much of this, like you said, people claiming to be progressive and allies and like, yes, let's protect gay people and yes let's respect them but oh no marriage is between a man and a woman right so you still right you we have not come along that far we've come along far enough that we can have we've come along far enough that we can have the birdcage we've come along far enough that we can have the birdcage shall i give a synopsis As of, of 1996 cage? oh yeah all right Young lovers Val Goldman and Barbara Keeley have decided to get engaged and are thrilled to begin their new lives together. However, this means that they would have to introduce each other's parents to one another. This is a stressful circumstance under traditional conditions, but in Val and Barbara's case, there are a few extra layers of complication. Barbara's father is a conservative senator and co-founder of the Coalition for Moral Order, which he started with a colleague who was just found dead in a bed with an underage black sex worker. And Val's father not only owns South Beach's premier drag club, The Birdcage, but is in a 20-year relationship with the club's star performer, Albert, a.k.a. Starina. Feeling the need to hide Armand's real identity from Senator Keeley, Barbara tells him that Armand is a cultural attaché to Greece and Val's mother is a housewife. As this information appeals to Barbara's parents, they decide to flee their home in secret and head to Florida to stay with Jeb Bush, making a stop in South Beach to meet Barbara's future in-laws. Meanwhile, Val insists that they rid Armand's home of all erotic art and send Albert away for the night. But when Armand, uh, when Armand tries to plant that seed with Albert, a fight ensues and Armand insists that he stay, but rid himself of his natural flamboyance and poses Val's uncle. Armand also feels that it's in their best interest to call upon Catherine, Val's birth mother, to join them for dinner in support of Val's future, seeing as how she has had no part in Val's life after giving birth to him. Once the Achilles arrive, it's one mishap after another, but it's potentially saved by Albert's last-minute audible to dress and act as a matronly woman claiming to be Val's mother, which, for all intents and purposes, he truly is. So, and I say this... So th happily, famously, Robin Williams plays Armand Goldman, Gene Hackman is Senator Keeley, Nathan Lane is Albert, Diane Wiest is Louise Keeley, Dan Futterman plays Val, Callista Flockhart is Barbara, we have Hank Azaria as Agador Spartacus, the, the houseboy, <laughs> uh, Christine Baranski is Catherine, Val's mother, and uh, it's just a, an amazing cast. We have Tom McGowan 
and Grant uh, Hesloy as National Enquirer uh, staffers. Tom McGowan, we've talked about on our Heavyweights episode. So, hey, what's up, Tom mm-hmm. McGowan? And yeah, I, uh, I it's a it's a perfectly cast film with absolutely iconic performances. Nobody can take that away from anybody. Uh, even Robin Williams as the, you know, I guess the straight man, uh, you know, to Nathan Lane's flamboyant uh, Albert, you know, he gets to really shine in a really, uh, in a really incredible way that I feel is, is best done by somebody like Robin Williams. Uh, if you're not going to cast somebody who's gay, cast somebody who is, you know, a, a true ally like Robin Williams. That's that's kind of my feeling about it. But yeah, I mean, Agre- I, yeah, yeah, I t- completely, completely agree with you on that part. I remember one of my f- going that takes me back to an, a first impression of this movie because this is coming on the heels of Robin Williams doing Mrs. Doubtfire and like, f- I think Flubber comes before this as well, or like right around the same time. So, and for me, I was also at an age where I was less interested in that Robin Williams. Yeah. I was interested in, I loved the Fisher King and then seeing this, what I really appreciated about it was that he didn't have the flamboyant role, yeah. which, and you, you say you, you describe it as perfectly cast. I agree with you. Of course, that was, this was not the original cast, not the original intention. Well, so it was going, right. going to be Steve Martin as Armand and Robin Williams as Albert, but it it is so much. And as much as I would have loved to have seen Steve Martin and Robin Williams in a movie together, this was not that movie. Yeah, and, and it, it. Yeah, and and I believe that Nathan the Lane stars was, aligned. I believe that Nathan Lane was at at one point approached to be in this movie, but couldn't because of his commitment on Broadway. In a funny thing happened on the way to the Forum that. We saw him in, which and met him afterwards, and met him afterwards along with Mark Lynn Baker, and uh, yes. I and and yeah, and up until this point, I mean Nathan Lane's film career, you know, he was in The Lion King and uh, had bit roles here and there. Life with Mikey, Life with, with Michael Mikey. J. Fox, right? Yeah, yes. he had he had yeah. roles, but they, nothing like really substantial. Uh, until really the Lion King and then, uh, you know, uh, appearing in this film and really shining brightly. It really was just like, and here is Nathan Lane as on screen. He is meant to be. And uh, I, uh, I really think that everything that he did with this role I mean, and and I feel like a lot of it was kind of pulled from La Caja Fall. Like there were certain elements to it that, you know, I believe he is taking from that or at least paying homage to. But he also makes it very much his own. And I'd say that especially when he is uh, at the end, you know, pretending to be a woman, which it is debatable by today's, you know, ideals and and definitions 
of uh, identity, sexual identity, and gender identity, uh, how Albert necessarily would identify because the entire time we hear him saying, you know, that he is Val's mother and uh, is commonly referred to using traditionally female, uh, I guess, I don't know if there were female pronouns, but female terms. Well, yeah, yes, yes. Well, and also, as is clearly demonstrated in the movie and by Nathan Lane's performance, that is the the skin in which Albert is most comfortable. So, yes, when and that's what it what it comes down to. They try all of these different ways to make it work with Albert there and nothing. It's like the scene when Nathan Lane comes in wearing the suit in, in into the bedroom oh, yeah. and try does like he's trying so hard to walk like a like a straight man and sit like a straight man and he's just so he plays the physical discomfort of just like that that the, like no this is not how my body is meant to move and right. be absolutely and when he when and when he just embraces it and says, "Wait a second, why don't I just lean into what I do well and dress like I am this yeah. conservative housewife that everyone wants?" That's a lot easier. I can actually pull that off more easily than I can oh, the the uncle. Well, he's so much more comfortable being in in the the that clothing and accessing that. Uh, those inflections in his voice and I, uh, you know, in full disclosure, you know, Dan and I are both cisgendered heterosexual males. I, uh, you know, we may not conform to a lot of the standards of masculinity, but I, uh, we, you know, are only speaking to this from, you know, a, a perspective of, of respect for people who are, I, uh, I guess, who do identify as a gender that is perhaps not the one that they were assigned at birth. And uh, right to to acknowledge that in 1996, where maybe there weren't things weren't so clearly defined, or if they were, it was not something that was being discussed openly. It's it's really great that we have this opportunity to uh, kind of look back and, you know, suggest that Perhaps there was a lot more going on with these characters than, you know, was maybe on the page. Oh, right. Well, yes, of course. But and and right in 1996, transgender was not a a word that was commonly known. And it wasn't people it, like that would have been a, a language, so to speak, that your mainstream audience wouldn't have understood. I mean, yeah, it, it like it didn't. People didn't just start identifying that way in the last 15 years. Sure. But it it's become, you know, we're talking about it. And and because as a society we're talking about it, it is it is much more a, just a part of of our society and it's another just another group of people that's part of the human fabric. Yep. And uh, and uh, I mean, yes, and uh, I acknowledge that part. One of the reasons why this movie is still relevant is because there are still so many people who don't feel the way that that John and I do about 
you, you know, just embracing people just for say who they, they are. Let's just say they align more closely with Senator Keeley. Yes. Yes. They align more closely with Senator Keeley, except <laughs> I like, yeah, I, yeah, they, they, they align much more closely with Senator Keeley. I just, I, I wonder like how many of them would even go to the, to the extent that Senator Keeley ends up at where he is. You can tell he, like, he might not, this might not be like his great awakening. Senator Keeley might not be woke as, yeah. as he drives away from the birdcage at no. the end of the movie, but at least what Senator Keeley is doing. And I think this is part of what, I think this is part of why, you know, you and I at least feel comfortable having this conversation sure. is knowing and recognizing common ground and seeing that like, okay, we're Senator Keeley comes closer to understanding how how humanity works and i hate if you hear me stammering by the way it's because the terms that we so often use are terms that i don't like to use like quote-unquote acceptance and tolerance because somebody being who they somebody just being who they are and that identity not detracting from anybody else or harming anybody else i don't believe that uh, anybody that there, there is like acceptance or tolerance doesn't come into it. You're your person. Perhaps it's not so much acceptance or tolerance, but it is showing signs of progress. Right. Yeah. It is. Uh, oh, yeah, I just wanted to explain is, why it's, I'm, it's, every, I'm stammering right. through these, through some of these, because yeah. every, like my mind goes to say ex- acceptance or tolerance and the other voice in my mind, there's, I've got a team working here and the other one's like, no, that's not what it is. But yeah, yeah. Senator Keeley yeah. makes, there is some progress. It might be baby steps to quote Dr. Leo Marvin. Well, yes. And, and it goes beyond just exiting the birdcage. It goes, you know, because we see them at the wedding of Val and Barbara and at this wedding, you know, Albert is dressed more comfortably in a way that Albert would normally dress. And there are drag performers who are in attendance in drag. And uh, on the other side of the aisle, we have Bob Dole. You know, <laughs> like we, you know, it's not like this wedding isn't happening or it's done in a shameful way. It is still happening in a very traditional way, and they are existing in the same room. It's not like Senator Keeley. We don't know what what happened to his political career after, I don't know, at any point, because it just doesn't get into that. But we have to assume that things ended up okay for him. I mean, I would assume if Bob Dole, and Bob Dole was the Republican nominee in 1996, the yeah. first the first presidential election in which I voted, by the way, and mm-hmm. I did not vote for Bob Dole. But I can't like, imagine. So I would say Bob Dole being there at this wedding signifies that things turned out OK. So I don't think Senator Keeley's career was was ruined 
And and you also not not to leave it out, but there's this other undertone of anti-Semitism and sure. Right. And we because of the 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 last name, they're they're Jewish, Armand Goldman, Albert Goldman. Right. Uh and they hide that. They they say that it's Coleman. The D is is silent, right? To avoid uh, further arousing Senator Keeley's <laughs> prejudice, which and I know that I'm not the first person to bring this up, but like, dude's gonna find out about all of this stuff at some point. Well, right, but right. I guess if it's you know right on the heels of a uh, scandal, then uh, sure. But you know, yeah, and dude's also find out. Like it's like Barbara's 18, Val's 20. They're going to make some rash, stupid decisions and maybe tell some lies. Oh, like getting married at 18 and 20? Well, yes. And then some along the way. So it's going to happen. They, uh, we'll talk about them. But uh, yeah, so I think... What this movie also represents progress because at the end you you have the minister and you have the rabbi next to each other doing doing the wedding service. So it and it's and everyone's fine and everyone is okay. Yeah. So yeah. that's so ultimately that's that's the message about this. That's yeah. the message in this movie is like, hey, we can all get together in one room in one room under one roof and like have a, a marriage happen and celebrate it and and be happy because that's what people do. And not just any room, one that God is present in. And by God, I mean Diane Weist. Oh, a true. <laughs> when she comes out in the that biker <laughs> shit at the end. Oh, the God. Leather. Yeah. Um, I when love- she is, yeah, when she is dressed as a man dressed as a woman it's perfect <laughs> that yeah which when the one guy's like hey, i've never danced with a man before there's always the first time but <laughs> yeah Di- but diane weiss is, is also so great in it i love her delivery she's got wonderful uh wonderful line i, w- I want to make sure i get it right i wrote it down and she says uh, somebody has to like me best <laughs> i know this was the first time that I watched the film and I paid probably closer attention to her than I had in the past. And uh, I I had definitely picked up on, you know, Senator Keeley's, I, I would say, attraction to Albert as a woman. And I think that it's because she is so matronly, yeah. stereotypically matronly and uh, ticks all of the boxes for the things that he says that he stands for, and and I well, not to mention she looks the way that she looks like Barbara Bush. She looks like Barbara Bush, right? <laughs> uh, their friend Jeb's mom, and uh, when uh, you know, I noticed a lot more Diane Weist's reactions to the ways that he was acting, and I the ways also that she was. Probably just as bad as Senator Keeley was, you know, in terms of their bigotry. Oh, yeah. And and seeing the way that she, you know, kind of egged him on in uh, 
you know, the way that he approached situations, I, I took closer attention to. Well, and she's just the best. And how she's all ready to take this idea of a wedding and exploit it for political reasons. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. No, this is... the. Yeah, no, she's not like this is she's going into like full Lady McBee mode. I yes, I don't say the name of the Scottish play. I'm superstitious. <laughs> I thought that's only like if you are on a stage or like it, in a theater. If you are in, if you are in a theater and it's not part of a script, I could totally say it. she's going into some major Lady Macbeth stuff there. I said it. I said uh, it. He said it. There. He I did it. it. Now, if bad stuff happens, <laughs> like just. Just remember, I mean, look, brief sh- like story, just a little tangent here. We were doing, I'm currently co-directing a production of The Laramie Project at the high school where I teach. And we were doing a little table read the other day in my co-director's classroom. And she is currently teaching Macbeth to her 10th grade students. So there were some copies of the books on the table and like it was going really poorly. And then we moved the books off the desks and it started going better. So just saying, interesting, like super, like, yeah, it's a superstition and all that, but I, this is one I'm sticking with. Yeah. Well, before we change the subject from that specifically, because you mentioned the Laramie Project, and it reminded me that, uh, you know, and this kind of also just goes back to representation. You know, Nathan Lane was not publicly out uh, as a gay man when this film came out. Uh, it was actually after Matthew Shepard had been killed that he publicly came out. So even though in his uh, private life he was an out gay man, uh, he was performing this and putting himself out there in a very not straight, (laughs) not, uh, you know, not a, uh, he's putting himself out there in a very major way in this, in this role. And that takes a lot of guts. I mean, because like we were saying, you know, even though things had come a long way in 1996, they were still really far oh. behind. Oh, like you said, you said, don't ask, don't tell yeah. before. Like that was still yeah. law. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, really absolutely. far, far back. Yeah. Which I feel like, uh, you know, going back to the movie In and Out, I feel like In and Out was a more direct, uh, you know, response to the don't ask, don't tell mentality. I mean, they even reference it directly in their like film within a film um that right uh the Matt, you know, Matt, Matt Dillon's character Matt Dillon yeah yeah, yeah and, and that that movie also written by a gay man yes Paul Rudnick yes so very intense. Going back to the birdcage yes but yeah. yeah but coming back yeah but you know what though the birdcage kind of fits into this like early this mid to late 90s representation of of gay men on screen and it it just you know these are really like the baby steps towards where we can get to where where we can just have a gay couple as you know in a tv show and or in a film and it's not they're not that's not the focus that's not the idea. Yeah. That's just a they. It's just a, oh yes, and they're a gay couple. That 
that makes no difference. Part of who they are. Yes, exactly. So like, and, and we're, we're definitely there. I don't have examples off the top of my head, but like, we're definitely there where we're having that and where we can, we, you know, where we can look at things with a, with a more, uh, you know, objective point of view. But these were the yeah. first steps. These were these were the first steps towards that. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, also speaking of representation, you know, Hank Azaria is clearly an actor who is uh, frequently under scrutiny of his uh, performances, you know, especially with The Simpsons and addressing the voice of Apu. And uh, uh, I have heard him in interviews say how, you know, in in hindsight, you know, he's glad that he did the birdcage and played this this amazing character, but would never consider doing something like that again and recognizes that it is, you know, not the, the path forward. And uh, luckily, you know, from what I can tell, his performance as Agador is still, it's celebrated, you know, uh, you, essentially globally. And... Uh, I feel like it's deservedly so. Yes, he does things very over the top, but that character needs to be uh, extreme and it it suits it so well. And because of the way that he plays it, it I feel like he contributes so greatly to making it feel like, you know, one of those French farces. Uh, oh, know, his totally. physicality. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah. he has what I what I appreciate about the performance is there are these moments where you can tell he's uh, getting frustrated with Val. He's upset yeah. or like he wants everything to go well. I love, love, love the scene when they're doing I could have danced all night. And he. Oh, my God. And he bursts through it's 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 such a great moment because everybody's happy like everybody's just having a great yeah. time it's i think like the first point in the movie where every where every character on screen is, is just enjoying themselves they're relaxed for the first time yeah they're at ease i mean we when we first meet the keelys they're so uptight because there is this scandal going on that directly impacts his political career. And, uh, you know, for somebody in that position, that's all that matters to them. You know, how things appear publicly. And uh, somehow the the perfect combination of all these characters hit this point where, you know, it broke that all down and they were able to finally relax and, and be carefree. And, you know... As we then see things tense up again once uh, the you know the wig starts to shift a little bit for for Albert and then Christine Baranski shows up who by the way another goddess of appearing in that final church scene or temple scene or synagogue scene whatever wherever they are exactly but, house uh, of Baranski, worship house of worship Christine Baranski absolutely killing this performance when doesn't she? i um when doesn't she but also you know this this film is much earlier well obviously much earlier in her career but you know this was really showing what she's capable of 
even in a role that is only there for a few scenes and the way that she you know takes over the screen especially when she's sharing a scene with Robin Williams right you know how do you break through that and she absolutely does it the way that she opens up that bottle of champagne, you know, between her knees, you know, talking about how she'd never been very maternal. (laughs) Oh my God. It's perfect. It's perfect. And she's so fantastic. And, uh, you know, she's one of those actors where it's like, I will watch anything that she's in. She's just so good. And like just swivels so easily between comedy and drama. And we've talked about her before, just how hilarious she is in movies like Bowfinger. And we talked about her at Adam's Family Values, which uh, so good. Also, Nathan Lane in that movie, though, uh, not not they're not on screen together at all right but then his character is not as prominent no 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 yeah. but she's no she's fantastic in that and with peter mcnichol of course and they so are good. so yeah so christine baranski and i think that she had a lot more credibility from her stage work so sure. i think she had a lot more seasoning and the, but this was a, a, a breakout role for her that I could see how this would then lead to her doing Bowfinger. Oh, a hundred percent, easily. So it's it's a wonderful performance. Again, perfectly cast. You're not going to hear any arguments from me. No, or yeah. anyone. I mean, if you want, if anyone listening wants to argue that, uh, email us at ruinedchildhoodspod at gmail dot com. Tell us why you don't think Christine Baranski is fucking awesome, and then we'll tell you why you're wrong. <laughs> well, let's talk about somebody who isn't awesome, and that is the character of Val. Oh, Val's such a piece <laughs> of shit. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. The the most unappreciative little turd. The just the hardest part of this movie for me to swallow is how I I let quite a few things go, but how shitty Val is after he was raised by Armand and Albert. Yeah. And after he meets this girl, so he's 20 and what he meets her at college. Yeah. And she's in what her first semester of college She would have to be. So they've like just met and they're going to get married and yeah. now all of a sudden so he's going to abandon i would imagine every value he's ever picked up i mean i'm not saying that it is unrealistic it, it i find that part hard to swallow absolutely i mean if i if i were val what i would do is understanding that there was a you know, a lie told to Senator Keeley from Barbara and that there would have to be something going on. Just say, like, now's not a good time to come visit and then, like, work on things a little bit. Like, don't rush into this meeting until you've got it dialed in. You know? Uh, yeah. Look, as stated earlier, you know, rational thought and patience are not some of Val's qual- I guess you know what 
Maybe you could say that Val get, uh, got that from his mother. And by mother, I mean Albert, who does make impulsive decisions. Yes. And- it, you know, behaves rashly and some and doesn't always think necessarily of every of everyone else's perspective. Yeah, though I I think like he's the victim in uh, of of so much of this and is is absolutely has every right to walk out every time. Like when Armand says, "We thought it would be better if you weren't here." I'm shaking my head now. Of course, you should walk out. Yeah. That's so shitty that your your partner. Like I I do love partner. yeah I do love how and uh, I I'm I can't remember exact I think this is this happens when uh, Armand is talking to Catherine about coming out to uh, to South Beach for the evening and uh, Albert goes to the train station saying that he's going to this like one part, this one, you know, town or whatever. He's like, well, the only thing there's a, a cemetery. And he's like, I know. Like, it's, it's like, that's this why big I dram- light. This dr- I know. I know this, dr- <laughs> this dramatic move to just be like, I'm going to the cemetery because I'm, I clearly am not made for this, this society and this world and this family. It's just so beautiful the way that he does it. It's so good. And, uh, I, uh, uh, you know, watching La Caja Fall and Dan, when's the last time that you watched La Caja Fall? Never. I've never. Oh, seen you've it. never seen it. I've never okay. seen it. You know, there are so many of like the same scenes and I feel like this was one that the birdcage played it in a much better way. And I felt like it had much to do with Nathan Lane and uh, the way that he performed it. That that felt a lot better to me. Another scene that I felt uh, was much more enjoyable in the uh, in the U.S. version, the you know the the birdcage was, you know, the whole the piercing the toast scene. You know, the the trying to mask up, uh, yeah, uh, Albert, and and a lot of that really just had to do with the setting. In the in La Caja Fall, they're in this, you know, they're sitting with their backs against a wall. And in the birdcage, they're outside and you see all of the trees and there's just the ambiance just feels a lot better. And uh, it's just like a stationary camera in La Caja Fall where it's just like straight on seeing the two of them. And there's like the toast is flying. He doesn't say I pierced the toast. Uh, Such a great line. (laughs) Such a great line. Yeah. I pierced the toast. Well, and (laughs) so coming back to uh, that sense of like of what setting so much of those scenes outdoors is the scene in in the park when they're like, how about those dolphins? Like, oh, Albert, you old so-and-so. Yeah. That being outside, it comes back to, uh, I feel like we should at least discuss some of the state that we are, the state that we're Absolutely. visiting. And, yeah. and, you know, discuss some of its finer points, uh, yeah. such, such as the, the pleasant weather. And, it's beautiful. Yeah. And the sunny beaches and the, it's the shun- it's the sunshine state yeah the that that relaxing that open vibe 
And there's so much representation. South Beach, of course, is not representative of all of Florida. Correct. South Beach is very party atmosphere and, you know, gay, straight, everyone. uh, It's you see so many of these scantily clad rollerbladers out uh, by the beach. Just especially in 96 thongs. I want to know what the thong budget was. Lots of butt cheeks. Yes. A lot of butt cheek in this. Uh, Hank Azaria is, I'd say, being the most famous of the, the butt cheeks. And quite quite nice looking too. He did a good job. No complaints. No compla- <laughs> well done. Well done. Fine sculpted body he had. <laughs> Perhaps still has. I just you know haven't seen him do a scene wearing a thong since this movie. I don't know if anybody has, but well, that said, well done. So <laughs> so yeah. So you get but and Florida has that like when you grow up on the East Coast. The like spring break, the people who are going to go to spring break and and like like do spring break the way that spring break is is stereotypically done, a.k.a. not me and John. Uh, But like those people are going down to they're going to, to South Beach. They're going to Fort Lauderdale. They'll go. They're all they're going down to Florida. And that's this is the environment they're going for, just a party environment. It doesn't matter what night of the week it is. There's going to be people out on the streets. It's going to be a party. And there's Starina is going to be on stage. Yeah. <laughs> the Kennedys could be there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, have you spent much time in Florida? No, I have not. I have you spent any time in Florida? Yes, uh, visiting our our grandmother, our late grandmother, when she lived there in one out. Delray Beach. Oh, definitely. And uh, yeah, that that was that's pretty much it. I don't know if I've spent any other time in Florida other than visiting grandma. I believe that my only time in Florida, which you would have been there for would have been the very brief period of time when we were, I guess, boarding a cruise ship. Right, yes. Yeah, in, uh, what, 2003? Yes. Yeah. So uh, I think that I would have flown in and probably gone, gone straight from the airport on like a shuttle or something to yes. the, uh, you know, <laughs> to where this boat was, but or the ship, I'm sorry. Uh, but that's it. That's that's all of Florida I have ever experienced. But I have technically stepped foot in the state of Florida. This is true. Yes. Yeah. I believe one year when we went to to uh, to do our, our family vacation to Sea Island, Georgia, which yeah. is down in the southern. Uh, we'll talk about that of, uh, on our next, next episode. episode. I'm sure. yeah. But I believe we flew into Jacksonville. On oh, did one we? Trip. If I remember correctly, we flew into Jacksonville on one huh. trip. Yes. So that there was, be- I think, only one time when we flew in, and I guess that would have been it. Jacksonville, really? No, though I also, uh, so I'll share this in terms of just seeing the state of Florida. So I visited our grandmother for Thanksgiving 2001. At the time, I was an actor, and I was part of a children's theater tour that was based out of uh, Kenner, Louisiana, right, uh, suburb of New Orleans. And we the tour ran through most of the southeast. The only southeastern state the tour didn't go into was Florida. But when it mm-hmm. came time for Thanksgiving, 
I decided that rather than buy a ticket, buy a plane ticket to to go home, I was going to take, I was going to bus it to Delray Beach. And yeah. I remember I left from Macon, Georgia and took to, took the bus down to, to Delray Beach and then took the bus back up to Shreveport, Louisiana. So went through a lot of the state. Didn't yeah. see a whole lot, but that's that's my experience with Florida. Got it. Okay. That's it. Yeah. That's all of it. I'm hiding <laughs> nothing. Yeah. Well, I I would say that uh, if given the opportunity, if if the birdcage were a, a real place, I would certainly love to go visit south beach and check out the bird cage dan do you have uh, a lot of experience going to any drag clubs drag clubs experience going to drag clubs i'm gonna say no experience going experience like just with drag and seeing drag like i've been to some burlesque shows mm-hmm. and known some uh, people who do uh, drag queens and and drag kings I, uh, my, I remember my, in college, my senior year of college, one of my, one of my housemates, uh, had a a drag persona. Yes. Uh, so Jamal, Jamal would perform under the name Chiffon. Chiffon, yeah. Yep. Chiffon. So it would, I'd come home sometimes and, and Chiffon would be just sitting on the couch there in a in a stuffed bra, sweatpants, robe, and a wig doing doing her nails or doing fantastic. Her and yeah. yeah, no, no, no. Uh, so not a lot of whole, not a lot of experience though going to drag clubs like the Birdcage. Uh, what about you? Uh, I think that the only time I went to a drag club because I've definitely seen lots of drag performances. Uh, and this is actually very regrettable because uh, here in Portland, Oregon, where I live, you know, there is a a pretty famous drag club. Um, you know, there's I think uh, she was one of the oldest drag queens out there, uh, Darcel, who passed away this past year. Um, there is a pretty iconic uh, club, which is Darcel's Club, that there's a lot of fantastic performances at. Uh, I think that uh, the performer poison water poison waters poison waters is the uh i think may uh i guess premier drag performer there Mm -hmm. and i uh i also know this one fantastic drag performer out here who's a drag clown carla rossi uh brilliant a shout out to oh uh well, you know, I feel like, yeah, we're just I'm, I'm sparking more memories here. And I mm-hmm. uh, also want to give a shout out to New York based drag queen Cholula Lemon, who <laughs> uh, I use, uh, performed with uh, in in Cubicle when I did sketch comedy. Oh, cool. So Michael Solis, who performed oh, and, yeah. and who's what I believe one of the first uh, people uh, to do drag queen story hour. Oh, fantastic. I, Michael, I thought was always very funny and, uh, always enjoyed, uh, his work. Yeah. Michael was, yeah. A wonderful performer. A gifted performer. Incredibly gifted performer. I've seen some of the videos that, that she, that Lemon has posted and I like just amazing, 
uh, wonderful performer. And also, John, you and I and our brother, Scott, who most recently guested with us on Mystic Pizza and another past guest of the show, my good friend Ray Dijon, attended a was it drag was it drag bingo i know there was was lip syncing happening i think that it was like drag karaoke or something there was something going on there was a drag queen hosting and lip syncing because i remember she was lip syncing to uh an orville peck song and i was really i had just like only i think recently gotten into orville peck so was (laughs) really like excited yeah well, so I think that, well, going back to what you were asking me about before, which is actual drag clubs, the one drag club I've been to was in New York. Um, I have to imagine it still exists called Lips. Uh, I'm going to look that up really quick. And I went there when I was 18. Um, yep, yeah, it's still there. It is on, uh, where is it? Why can't I find? Oh, it's on uh, East 56th. So I... Uh, I went there for my friend Jenny Brown, past guest Box Brown's sister. I went there for her 18th birthday with uh with with Jenny and her mom, Mary. And we had such an amazing time. I was just texting with her about it the other day. Uh you know, I mentioned it and she was just like, Yes, that was my 18th birthday. I guess they <laughs> um I they like she told them that it was her birthday and they like picked her up and like paraded her around and stuff. And it was so much fun. It was just the best. And anybody who has a problem with drag can, uh, I don't know, eat shit. They're a fucking drag. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just so much fun. Um, there's a fantastic documentary, uh, called workhorse queen that I, I screened at a theater not too long ago about a drag performer, Mrs. Kasha Davis, who was on, I think, season five of RuPaul's Drag Race and RuPaul's Drag Race, which has yeah. done wonders for uh, uh, raising the profile of drag performers and just the art form of drag in the first place. Although I have heard uh, other performers who have had qualms with the fact that because of RuPaul's Drag Race's popularity and the expectations of so many different outfits that those outfits are very expensive and there's now a standard to be you know performing with a number of different looks which has uh made it very difficult for a lot of performers who can't afford to uh keep that up but you know rupaul another 90s kind of you know step in the right direction another you know person out there groundbreaking trailblazing and I didn't. You have the. Did you have the single of Supermodel? Awesome. Yes, I did. Yes, we talked about singles on the last episode. We sure did. Yes, we sure did. And uh, yeah, I definitely had Supermodel uh, as a as a single. You know what? It's I was a great song. Just, it's a great song. You know what song. I was just thinking about? Uh, what? So this episode is coming out uh, the day after Halloween, uh, twenty twenty three, and I was just talking to somebody about alternative uh, trick-or-treat options to candy. And how fun would it be to hand out casingles? Oh, my God. It'd be like going <laughs> to a bar mitzvah in 1990, like my bar mitzvah. <laughs> Did that you was, give out casingles? Yeah, that was. those were like the game prizes. Everyone got, got casingles. I, uh, I, re- I, wonder, I wonder if that's where I got uh, Supermodel from. No, I don't. Supermodel was not out yet. 
That would have oh, been right. So yeah, the singles that we gave out, I think like Groove is in the Heart was one of them. Uh-huh. There were some. Uh, oh man, right. Supermodel totally was ninety three. So right, yeah. yeah, but yeah, no, totally cause singles. And and going back before that, I remember getting a, a forty five at our cousin Jeffrey's bar mitzvah. Wow, I got a forty five. For a record, a record, yeah, people, a record, not a firearm. <laughs> so right, why? It's amazing that my mind didn't even go to firearm at all. It it didn't. I mean, granted, we're talking about music, so it didn't at first. But I think what I where I went on that, I thought of the the film title, Love and a Forty Five, and yeah, I just thought, let me let me be clear about this. So it was a 45 of the Ghostbusters theme song. Nice. And I would have it to this day, except that I was a little kid and it did not occur to me that leaving a record on a radiator would <gasps> would cause the record to melt. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So that is what happened. R.I.P. to that 45. Pour one out. Absolutely. Pour one out. Pour that 45 out because it was liquid. Yikes. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the birdcage. Dan, this is a, uh, I think, just a, a, a an iconic, pivotal movie for the mid-90s. Did you watch this movie for this episode? Yes, though I didn't have to. I could have... You didn't have to. We could have had this... I think the only things that... Watching the the movie right now, watching the movie, like I finished it up maybe an hour before we started recording. Oh, nice. So I that all that really did was I wrote down some of some quotes that I really liked that are not quotes that I already know from the movie. Oh, lay them on me. Well, like the somebody has to like me best. Oh yeah. Like that. There's that line. There's uh, the scene that opens with them on the beach and Albert is entirely covered up. And his first line in the scene is, I love the sun. And yeah. I never was like, holy shit, that's so funny. I love Gene Hackman's speech about driving when he's just rambling about driving through the states and the, the purple mountain majesty and it's all that. It's so good. And then when they're when they're at dinner after Albert comes in and pardon the language of in this quote, but I'm I'm quoting here. But when they're talking about uh, gays in the military, and Al and Albert goes like, I was totally against gays in the military. Then I found out that Alexander the Great was a fag. Talk about yeah. gays in the military. Yeah. <laughs> I had never caught that line before, and <laughs> that's an awesome one. Yeah, Love that it. one's so good. And that's Elaine May. That's uh, is that's so a thousand percent Elaine May. You could tell also is using the word. Definitely uses that word a lot, and I can only imagine that she's getting it. And of course, you know, uh, we we know uh, we 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 have had an Elaine May expert on on the podcast. This is true. Carrie Corrigan, uh, uh, Elaine May biographer. I don't know what the status is of that of that book, but we'll and I can I can only imagine that Elaine May had quite a few gay friends. I'd be surprised if Elaine May had any straight friends, <laughs> other than Mike Nichols. Correct. Other than Mike Nichols, right? 
So that's uh, so I I can only imagine that she's using it with their blessing and and some sense of like yes this is the conversation that they would have sure yeah yeah uh that's that's so much fun was there anything other than just quotes that maybe you picked up on this time or oh oh any any other favorite moments i had another moment where as uh, gene hackman says to them like i hope this doesn't affect your vote yeah. Like, they wouldn't be... You're a senator from Ohio running for... I know. Election. Yeah, I, I picked up on that, too, but... No, I didn't... But I also didn't... I didn't take it as, like, careless writing. I took it as he's constantly politicking. That's just the way that he thinks. Right. Yeah, and he, absolutely. he might not even necessarily mean their vote for him. Yeah. Uh, so those were... Those were really the things that I wrote down. But other things, like, I could have... I remember Gene Hackman's speech about the the foliage. Virginia has such lovely foliage. We go down to Virginia to watch the foliage turn. I, Yeah, would have remembered that. I pierced the toast. Agador's Spartacus. Uh, uh, I did find out, and, like, okay, maybe this is just IMDb trivia, but I feel like when there's a, a professional wrestling connection, it's my duty to bring <laughs> it up. And allegedly, the uh, the the late, great Eddie Guerrero, pour another one out, who really became, uh, when, when he uh, started working in WWE, had this gimmick, this Latino heat gimmick, where he, that's what he said was like, oh, you just can't handle my Latino heat. Oh, yeah. And they said he took it from Hank Azaria in The Bird Games. Oh, that he absolutely. got it from that you can't absolutely. handle my Guatemalan-ness yes. line or, or whatever, <laughs> whatever he says. Yeah. Yeah. So great movie. Lot, lots of fun, even though Val is a total shit and we have no idea why everyone is just going out of their way to accommodate him other than that you know and this is the this is maybe the thing that that justifies it is that especially in 1996 and regardless of when uh, especially in Florida for a gay couple to be raising a child as their own yeah. like that's a privilege so you know what val probably did get spoiled and val probably did get away with being a shit a lot of the time sure yeah absolutely so yeah, yeah that's my take on it uh i want to give a shout out to uh somebody who doesn't come up in conversations about this movie enough and that's steven sondheim Oh yeah, and who who wrote uh, a few songs for the movie because I believe that it was originally supposed to be a musical. Uh the the movie was supposed to be a musical and so uh there are a few songs that were written for the film. There's Little Dream that Nathan Lane performs, Love is in the Air, which is the one that Robert Williams and Christine Baranski perform, which was not written for the movie. That was well, a but song. it's still written by Stephen Sondheim. It, yeah, no, they were songs written yeah. by Stephen Sondheim, but those were songs that were outtakes from uh, Love is in the Air was originally the opening number to A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. Oh, really? Which then got swapped out for Comedy Tonight. Yeah, there's a well, similar song in, in A well, Funny the, Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. There is a song called It Takes All Kinds that was um, written for uh, The Birdcage. 
So uh, according to this credit, it was written to be used in the opening of the film, but not used by director Mike Nichols. So okay. Stephen Sondheim did a lot of work for specifically this movie. Well, and also Stephen Sondheim's very frequent collaborator, Jonathan Tunick, did all of the arrangements for the movie. So Oh, really? Yeah. Very I I in college I took a uh a Stephen Sondheim course. I took a summer course on Sondheim. So learned learned quite a bit. Uh So that's so that's what theater majors do. Uh yes, that is also what people who want to graduate in 4 years and who maybe are a few credits behind that goal do. But that's I mean that sounds like a really interesting class. It was a it was a it was yeah. a fun course. I have I have good memories of driving down to Rutgers. Uh, I forget if it was once or twice a week uh, in the evening. And oh, okay, uh, yep, going to class and just yeah, talking about the musicals of of Stephen Sondheim. And at that at that point, I was a theater major, and it, everybody just worshipped at the altar of Sondheim. Of course, yeah, yeah. I've since come to find that I am not, I don't enjoy some of his work as much as I once pretended I did, but that's- <laughs> No, uh, and you've I, talked about that on the podcast before. Yes, I have. Yeah. Correct. So John, what? anything else to say before we talk about what we would do with, with the birdcage? I would love to talk about what we would potentially do with the birdcage, and uh, I'll, I'll go first on this one. So on our last episode, which was our- um, uh, Empire Records, I had suggested doing a pop-up record store that was Empire Records. And uh, I, I hate to say it, but I want to do essentially the same thing for the birdcage. I feel like we need to have a, uh, a, a drag club called the birdcage that celebrates the movie. Perhaps there is a, um, a performer who does kind of a send up of Starina. Uh, maybe there is there are performances that can be done uh, that honor the different characters in the movie. Uh, also, uh, a song that you probably don't hear in drag clubs these days. We are family. I feel needs to be uh, given given a little bit of a tip of the hat to. Oh yeah, yeah. I was trying to do some research to see how much that that how much money that song has made. No kidding. No but, kidding. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That song's fucking everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. So a pop-up, I would go to that if they did that in Seattle, if they did a Seattle birdcage. Yeah. Absolutely. And Dan, I mentioned this before we started recording, but this is our third episode in a row where the name of the title of the movie is the uh name of the the key location in the movie. So Empire Records, the Birdcage, and Mystic Pizza, all establishments. That are uh, pivotal to the to the plots of these movies. Yep. So, Dan, what would you do with the birdcage? That's an excellent question, and I think the I feel like the obvious choice is a musical, but it's also been done. So this is going to be now like a movie based on a movie that had a musical based on it. And, oh, right, that movie was also based on a stage play. So now we're going to have a musical based on the movie. And then that's probably going to become another movie. Because that's what happens. Okay. Because we now we've got, like, Mean Girls, the musical, the movie. 
Right. Etc. Etc. So hairspray like, the mu- the movie musical based on the musical based on the movie. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I I don't want to go that route with it. I was thinking about other other things, and you know, you could have a yeah, you could do a show, you could do a series based around the birdcage and the you know turn it into like you know a workplace. Uh, you know, workplace show, workplace uh, could be a comedy. I I kind of see it more actually as like a drama. Uh, okay, maybe not a drama, but like not a you know twenty two minute ha 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 sitcom, but just more of a like this is everything that happens when you are running a drag uh, like the most popular drag club in South Beach, and you are for all intents and purposes, or depending on when you're setting it, not even for all intents and purposes, just straight up married to the person, to your star. Like there's a lot of drama in that just inherently without everything else. You add to that a, a, a question of like, well, do you set it today as Florida is under this like fascist idiot Ron DeSantis yeah. Again, if you disagree, send us an email at ruinedchildhoodspod at gmail.com. Tell us why you disagree and we'll tell you why you're wrong. Yes. So, uh, you know, that adds some other things to it. But then again, you also don't want to fall into cliches and kind of been there, done that feeling. So I I think it would be fun to have a show uh, set around a a drag club. Sure. So I, I that's what I would do. You could there's so many other options looking at you know making a prequel about Val about you know Val growing up and showing Armand and Albert in in the 70s and and yeah. 80s, which again that could depending on when you said it, it goes back to the AIDS crisis. Yeah. Again, you could end up you you almost you can't avoid that topic. Just like if you said Absolutely, it in Florida yeah. today, where where they have a don't say gay law, it, it's unavoidable. But then again, maybe you don't set it in Florida. Maybe the birdcage isn't in South Beach. Maybe it's somewhere else because you still have all of those. I mean, set it in Austin. Sure. Why? I mean, yeah. put put it in Texas. That's that that's another set of of challenges. Well, I mean, Austin also a you know a bubble, right? A, a progressive bubble in an otherwise very not progressive state, right? No, exactly. So it, it, it could transfer over. You could uh, you could do it that way. So I think there's a few ideas th- that uh, that would work. I don't necessarily know that anything needs to be done to the birdcage. It's it's already this you know newest version of the 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 newest take on this on this tale. So why not just let it let it be? It's also a testament, you know, ra- tragically lost Robin Williams. Sure. So yeah. keeping one of you know, one of his best performances, uh, and keeping it seen, keeping it relevant. Well, also, I think that maybe we're due for a 
a new uh, Blu-ray that actually does have a commentary track on it, which we don't have. And to hear from Nathan Lane and Hank Azaria, Diane Wiest, Callista Flockhart, you know, people who were, you know, part of this movie that can speak to it, especially, especially, you know, all of these years later to be able to speak about it with, uh, you know, more current information and right. a, a better vocabulary about, you know, some of the things that come up in this movie. And I, I think that it would be a really great, co- I don't know if, uh, I, I, if people listen to commentaries as much as I do, I know that there's the physical media enthusiasts, but I know that when we decided that we were going to do this movie, I was very, I, the first thing I did was I checked to see if there was a commentary out there and there, there was not. So, so I would love to have, I would love to have heard that. Okay. So this needs to join the criterion collection. And also, I mean, we are, Elaine May is still with us. Correct. Elaine May is still with us. Mike Nichols passed away in 2014. I believe. Sometime, yeah. yeah. I don't know how interested Elaine May would be in uh, recording something like that. I mean, she's 91 years old. Also, she doesn't give a shit about anything. <laughs> right. That's why I would love to hear her commentary because she's like, by the, she's, she'll probably, she would probably even say it. Like I'll probably be dead by the time anyone hears this. Uh, yeah. She, she's not one that, you know, speaks about her work anymore. Really? I, you know, no, 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 you're, yeah. you're much more likely to get Callista Flockhart, Dan Futterman, Hank Azaria. Yeah. And also Dan Futterman, not Val. Val is its own separate thing, but Dan Futterman, Shout out to Dan Futterman, writer of Capote, you know, Oscar nominated screenwriter. Well, which is and funny coincidence because Dan Futterman was nominated in the same, I believe, in the same year as Grant Heslow was nominated for Good Night and Good Luck for oh. writing for writing Good Night and Good Luck. Look at that. Yeah, I uh, as a writer because I feel like there was a what was the other one that he was nominated for. Uh, best screenplay, Foxcatcher. Right. Best original screenplay. So, uh, you know, no slouch and definitely a big, you know, producer who's very active. So uh, Dan Futterman, you know, your character sucked, but you're you okay by us. Yeah. As far as we know, you're you're cool. Yeah, we have no evidence to the contrary. Yeah. Again, if you have evidence to the contrary and you think Dan <laughs> Futterman's a piece of shit... Email us at runechildhoodspot at gmail.com. Tell us why. And honestly, we don't, I don't know if we could prove you wrong on it. So if you are Dan Futterman, email us and tell us all the ways that you're problematic. Yeah. We want to know. Yeah. Let us know. I mean, other like, you know, how much of a stretch was it for you to play Val? Come on. Seriously. And shout out to Gene Hackman, who's hopefully enjoying retirement. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I also feel like when we talk about movies like this, where there are some people in it, like Diane Wiest and uh, and Gene Hackman, who, you know, are so easy to dislike in the movie, but you know that because they are in this movie, they, as people, don't believe in the mess, the things that they're saying on oh, screen, no. you know? Yeah. You know, so big shout out to people like that, because that's real acting. When you have to go into a movie that's, you know, very pro drag and you know pro gay culture queer culture and you come in and you are the conservative senator and his maybe even more conservative wife 
that takes a lot of courage to do <laughs> and also just to like uh, you know and that's act, that's acting baby that's it <laughs> and it, it just makes the reveal at the end when when gene hackman's in drag it, it just makes it so much better it's satisfying it yes. is really he it has quite a b arthur quality I'm so glad you said B. Arthur. Before we move on to the very final, you know, talking about our next episode, the way that Nathan Lane walks is so Dorothy. <laughs> it's so when Dorothy's dressed up for a night out, that is how Nathan Lane walks in this movie. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Wow. Okay, Dan, what are we going to be talking about on our next episode as well, we go to Georgia? We're going north of the border, of the Florida border to Georgia, and we are going to be joining Burt Reynolds, Sally Field, Jerry Reed, Jackie Gleason for 1977 Smokey and the Bandit. That's right. This one actually comes to us as a suggestion from past guest Millie DeCherico, who I a Georgia lives in Georgia, Georgia yeah. native. Absolutely. So thank you, Millie. We've been talking about a lot of past guests on this episode. That's kind of fun. So uh, who who have you not? Gabrus, we haven't talked about. <laughs> no, hey, Gabrus. We could get some suggestions for New York. What's the quintessential Long Island, Long Island, yeah. Long Island movie? Long Island. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, Smokey and the Bandit. I'm really excited. I watched the movie a few years ago, and my love for Sally Field just grew and grew and grew she's so fantastic oh oh i can't wait i can't wait i hope we get the sally field like the you know the thing she does the thing she does <laughs> and and hey talking about iconic mustaches oh burt reynolds dude dude yeah. and also talk in in and out an iconic mustache that gets shaved off Tom Selleck. Tom Selleck's. No mustache. Right. And if we're going to go even further with this, but not really make a whole lot of sense, Burt Reynolds' other big Georgia movie, Deliverance, he does not have his mustache. He does not have a mustache. That is true. Also in in and out June Squibb. Anyway, Dan, as you are... (laughs) And Wilford Brimley, but yeah. As you are headed from uh, the the great state of Ohio fleeing out to South Beach, I would... I wish you a good journey. Good journey. Good journey.